Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Designing a Game-Changing User Experience, presented by SAP, the best-run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to help resolve some of the world's biggest challenges and to create real business impact. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you want to run with the Game Changers, you're in the right place. We always say it. We always mean it because it's true, because this is where the best run. Let's see what the buzz on the street is today. I have an interesting quote from a gentleman named Lowry, L-A-U-R-I, Luca, L-U-K-K-A, who ran a survey of Finnish design professionals. That's design professionals in Finland. His uh, his bio online says he's currently traveling through time. I don't want to know any more than that. Here's the quote. Listen up. Very, very important. If one does not consider ethics an integral part of the design profession, they shouldn't be designing anything whatsoever. Let's just let that sink in for a second. We're talking about the design profession, yes, and we're talking about the word ethics. It's a big word, hard to wrap your arms around sometimes. So let's talk about what this really means before I introduce you to my three panelists. We find ourselves now in the early days of the fourth industrial revolution, in case you've lost count. And we are seeing a wave of new technology and business models. What's the big deal about them? They're transforming our society, our culture. And for those of you who are business listeners all over the world, our corporations our enterprises, our SMEs and SMBs. What is driving this? Two little letters, AI. If you're not on board, I'll tell you, they mean artificial intelligence. They're at the center, AI. The letters are at the center of the transformation. And there's good news and there's bad news. They hold exciting potential, but they also hold formidable risks. AI is one of many technologies driving this. So what are the implications of AI for business, specifically for your business? Do we need a framework of what we'll call digital ethics? Did you ever think you need a digital ethic handbook or guidebook to guide your progress in your company? And what if you had such a handbook? What if you had such a framework? Does it have pitfalls? Can you fall off with it? Is it going to keep you on track? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? This is a huge topic. It's very, very important. And we're going to be speaking with three experts in just a few minutes to find out their thoughts, get their insights. This is a topic everybody needs to listen up at. So welcome, welcome, welcome again. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Very happy to be here. And a shout out to Esther Blankenship at SAP for putting together this wonderful topic and extraordinary panel. Now I'll tell you who they are. First up in a moment, we'll be speaking with a newcomer to Game Changers, Chris Wigley, spells his last name W-I-G-L-E-Y. He's a solution partner at a company called Quantum Black, and we'll find out what Quantum Black is in a few minutes and what big company it's part of. And joining him is one of our, well, he's a regular for probably the past six years on many of our Game Changer shows. It's Frank Diana, managing partner and futurist at TCS. That's Tata Consultancy. Welcome back, Frank. And another newcomer, we have Guido Wagner, senior project lead for innovation projects at SAP. So thank you in advance to my three esteemed panelists for doing the prep, for sending us your ideas on the topic. This is really a big topic. Let's get our arms around it. Chris Wigley, you're up first at Quantum Black, and Chris has sent us a quote from Leo Tolstoy. Very briefly, uh, Leo Tolstoy was a Russian writer, regardless, regarded as one of the greatest authors of all time. His full name was Count Lev Nikolaevich Tolstoy, 1828 to 1910. Here's the quote. 
Blessed are those who seek. Cursed or cursed are those who think they have found. Chris Wigley, love the quote. Welcome to Game Changers. How are you? Very well. Very well, Bonnie. Thanks. Great to be here. We're delighted to have you. I love the quote. It sounds like it's a quote for how to live your life. So tell me how it relates to our topic on design and digital ethics. What are we talking about here? Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, it's a great quote to live by because um, it says that we never arrive. Um, We need to keep challenging ourselves. We need to keep looking for uh, new horizons, new things that we might be getting wrong, new things we can fix. And um, I think that with the world we live in moving so fast these days, we need to keep constantly challenging ourselves and reinventing ourselves. Do you think, let me ask you, Chris, I'm, I'm going to get you to give me your position on this topic right now. We don't usually do this at the start of the show, but do we need, yes or no, and then a couple of sentences of why you feel this way, do we need a framework for digital ethics? Yes or no, and what's your thought on that quickly? Yes, absolutely. I think that it's such a thorny issue and so complex and nuanced that unless we can um, help ourselves and help others to um, put a bit of structure around that, it, it can feel overwhelming in terms of how we start to answer some of these questions. Thank you very much. Good. Just wanted to get that out of the way so we have a framework here for our framework. Thank you very much and nice to meet you. And now let's go to the next stop around the table, Frank Diana. And he has sent us a quote from Frankenstein's monster. And Frank, I'm going to read read this. Frankenstein's monster is often erroneously referred to as just Frankenstein, not the correct name. You got it right. It's a fictional character who first appeared in Mary Shelley's 1818 novel, Frankenstein, they said in the movie, or the modern Prometheus. The title compares the monster's creator, Victor Frankenstein, to the mythological character Prometheus, who fashioned humans out of clay and gave them fire. I'll just leave it there. Here's the quote. You are my creator, but I am your master. Obey. Frank Diana, how have you been? I've been great. Thanks for having me back. Well, always happy to have you back. You're going to be on another show with me next week for a very, very special show, but we'll talk about that later. Frank, how did you pick this quote? we have I don't think we've ever had a quote from or about Frankenstein. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Tell me what this means for our topic. Well, given the topic of ethics and design, um, you know, there's many that believe that we're on a path to creating something, and what that something is can either be a constructive advancement of human flourishing, or it could detract from our humanity. And, of course, uh, we don't know sitting here today what path it takes or some variation of those paths, but I think it's a great quote in the context of this topic uh, and just what uh, what we might be creating as we look at uh, AI, as you mentioned, and other innovations. Thank you, Frank. Let me ask you the same question I posed to Chris Wigley a moment ago. Do we need the digital ethics framework, yes or no, and why? Uh, yes, absolutely, and the why is related to what I just said. Uh, it, mm-hmm. we, we've been here before, and innovation at this level, at this speed, can take a number of different paths. And so without a, a guiding light, if you will, in the context of ethics, um, we could go down some very bad paths. And so I think it's very critical that humanity starts to focus on this. 
Thank you very much. And you and I have discussed this before. I think uh, you did a, a, a MOOC for uh, Open SAP about two years ago, and you honored me by inviting me to moderate a panel with you, Grace Scott, another one of our go-to futurists, and somebody else talking about, about ethics. And I appreciated that opportunity very much. Frank, we have a lot more to hear from you. Thanks for joining me. And now we go to our third panelist, newcomer Guido Wagner at SAP, and he has sent us a quote from Dr. Stephen Hawking. I call him Dr. Hawking, I, although in his letters after his name, I don't see uh, MD or PhD, but it's Stephen William Hawking, C-H-C-B-E-F-R-S-F-R-S-A, passed away last year, English theoretical physicist, cosmologist, and author, who is the director of research at the Center for Theoretical Cosmology at the University of Cambridge. Very interesting man. Look him up if you don't know who he is. He did suffer from ALS since 1963, but managed to talk through a speech-generating device and shared his brilliance with the world for many, many years, despite his disability. Here's the quote. Our future is a race between the growing power of our technology and the wisdom with which we use it. Let's make sure that wisdom wins. Beautiful quote. Guido Wagner, welcome. How are you? How are you doing fine? Thanks for inviting me. We're delighted. Thank you. Thank you to Esther for inviting you. And, and that's what I'm going to say. So, Guido, talk to me about this quote. It's so interesting. Uh, the idea that let's make sure that wisdom wins. I think, doc, I think Stephen Hawking understood what we're talking about today. So what's your take on this? Absolutely. So, Bonnie, I picked that quote because I think that this race between how we use our technology and uh, our human wisdom already started to have a global impact 70 years ago. So in the times of the first uh, nuclear bomb, scientists and politicians needed to talk about what is uh, the potential destructive impact of the technology on our entire humanity. Yeah? And uh, in our days, it might be that genetic researchers took over that uh, task because they need to think about what happens if we start to change our human genome. And uh, it might be a one-way road for humans. And in the near future, that's my opinion, AI developers will have a similar challenge because um, they must think about what uh, should we do with all the potential AI features. Should we all use it, yes or no? What is the risks? What is real? And what is only science fiction? And how can we mitigate it? So I don't know. I'm not sure. Let's talk about Okay, very, very interesting. So, framework, do we need a guidebook to digital ethics? This is something you think every company needs or just some. Are you on board with that? Yes or no, Guido? Just want to get your opinion there up front. Absolutely, it is required and it must be uh, done in uh, cooperation between companies. So we don't have a real human overall global ethical framework and we can't expect uh, systems to behave ethically without some digital ethics framework. Very interesting. So we've got three absolutely yeses from the panel. I uh, really appreciate that. Esther, we've got a good conversation here going on, so thank you again for a great topic. Guido, welcome. And now let's go around the panel and briefly get to know our panelists a little bit. Number one, where in the world are you today, whether we called you, I know we called two of our panelists, or you called us. Number two, just tell me briefly what is the beverage that's your favorite in the whole world that powers you, either relaxes you or makes you feel energized and smart about everything you do? And number three, give us a little bio. Who are you? What do you do? What does your company do? So, Chris Wiggly, you're up first. Talk to me, please. Hi. So, I'm speaking to you from beautiful London, England, and there's a blue sky here. Um, 
Our offices in London look out over the National Gallery, uh, which is a very impressive building. Mm. There's, a, there's a great exhibition in there at the moment that I saw yesterday, so I'm, ex- I'm excited about that. And uh, the other way, looking over to Buckingham Palace. So it's almost a sort of tourist's paradise uh, view over London. Um, and hidden away, just in the little streets behind Buckingham Palace, there is a, a hotel called Duke's Hotel, uh, mm-hmm. which makes the world's finest martinis. Um, and so within the, uh, in the James Bond books, um, he, would, uh, he would go for a martini at Duke's uh, Hotel. And so quite often on a, on a Friday evening after um, achieving everything that needs to be achieved for the week, um, I'll go with a friend for a, for a martini to uh, Duke's Hotel. And that, uh, that inspires us and uh, gets us ready for the weekend. Um, I am impressed, Chris. Wow. Very, very, very. Do you like it dry? Is it a Bondian type of a, a dry? What is it? Uh, shake twice? I don't know. I'm not, not a martini drinker. What's the word? Stir but not shaken? Or how yeah, many so olives? Exactly. So uh, Bond would say shaken not stirred with his, uh, his catchphrase. But um, <laughs> in fact, they now just serve it straight from, the, uh, straight from the freezer. So they keep it at minus 18 degrees centigrade, which I'm not sure what the Fahrenheit number is, but very cold. <laughs> pour it into an ice cold glass, and uh, it's it's good to go. So these days they don't either shake it or stir it, but it's uh, it's ice cold already. Mmm, delicious! And now tell us what is Quantum Black? What company are you affiliated with, and what do you do there? Yeah, of course. So um, Quantum Black is a uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence uh, boutique. So we're we're about three hundred and fifty, four hundred people. And we build uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence products for the clients that we work with. And that could be anything from applications to predict uh, patient safety incidents in clinical trials um, or to optimize how a complex machine works um, using these, using these technologies um, or even do things like um, for a sports team predict which player um, could get injured and what's, the, what's their risk score. So all of these things around predicting and optimizing complex systems, we build technology for that. And we're a, we're a fully owned um, part of the McKinsey ecosystem. So um, Quantum Black started life back in 2009, but we were acquired by McKinsey uh, mm-hmm. about three, four years ago. Um, and so, yeah, so that's given us a, um, a, the capital and the space to, to grow very rapidly over the last few years, which has been fun. And um, my role here is that I'm a co-leader of Quantum Black and um, spend a lot of time flying around the world doing things like uh, speaking to our clients and uh, opening new offices and things like that. It keeps me busy. I bet it does, and I bet you're happy to get home and go over to Duke's from time to time for that special martini. <laughs> that is a, a nice sure. piece of cultural history you just shared with us. Thank you, Chris. Very, very happy to have you on the show and looking forward to a lot more from you in terms of your position on digital ethics. Very big topic. Frank, Diana, let's catch up with you. Where are you today? Uh, I don't remember what drink you gave me last time, but what are you doing as a futurist at TCS? I know you've been maybe living out of a suitcase for the past couple months because you're always traveling when I contact you. So, Frank, catch us up, please. Yeah, it's good to be in my home office in New Jersey today as opposed to on an airplane. Yep. Um, so that's, that's where I am. Uh, and as, as you know, I am a futurist uh, working for Tata Consultancy Services, and I do 
been some fascinating time with leaders talking about where where society in general is heading in in that context, what it means for uh, leaders of organizations, whether that be business or government. And as you might imagine, those conversations sometimes are fascinating, but sometimes they can be scary. And I yep. think that's uh, at the heart, heart of this discussion as well. So it keeps me busy and a lot of fun. Uh, and um, my uh, my drink of choice is always red wine, whether it energizes mm-hmm. me to different story but <laughs> touche do you have a favorite a favorite label you'd like to recommend uh, not really I, I just i love to try different different wines and so i'm always experimenting i used the to democracy what's that when i was growing up I, as an italian growing up my my father used to make wine so we used to do that ah. a lot experimenting way back when very, very interesting. The democratization of red wine. If it if it looks good and might taste good, that's it. Put it on the table. Thank you, Frank. And Guido Wagner, you're one of our newcomers today. Let's get to know you a little better. Where in the world are you? What's your favorite drink? And tell me all about what you do at SAP, please. Okay, let me start. So I'm currently here at the SAP headquarters in Germany, which is located in the River Rhine Valley near Heidelberg. Most people may know it. And yeah, my favorite drink. So, you know, I grew up in a small town around here. So there is one of the last private breweries, which is called Kirner Brauerei. And uh, most of the other breweries were bought up by a few large beverage companies. And so, yeah, it's really in, uh, in the afternoon already here. And uh, after the show, I will have a really good German beer, for sure. Mm. And uh, yeah, so what I'm doing at SAP, so my job is to be responsible for building prototypes and for taking latest technologies and to find out how we can use it in the next generation of software. And of course, of course AI takes a major role here. Thank you very much. Very interesting. Thank you to our three panelists. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. I'm here in Durham, North Carolina. Beautiful day, and I'm drinking water, and we'll just leave it at that. And I'll have a big announcement at the end of the show about Game Changers Radio, and Frank Diana is in on what that announcement is, so we're going to keep it a secret till I make the announcement. Again, a shout-out to the sponsor of this series, Esther Blankenship at SAP. If you're just tuning in, This is Designing a Game-Changing User Experience. It's Tuesday, May 21st. Our topic today is a very important one, applies to every company, big or small, no matter what your industry is. You are designing something somehow, somewhere, some way. The topic is digital ethics and AI, artificial intelligence, and it goes beyond that. It's to all disruptive technologies, what your business needs to know. That's why we're here. Talking today with Chris Wigley at Quantum Black, Frank Diana at TCS, That's Tata Consultancy and Guido Wagner at SAP. We're going to take a quick break, 90 seconds. That's all we got. And we'll be right back with a very, very robust and interesting roundtable. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. We'll be right back. Aaron out. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. How will we work in the not-too-distant future? Will we work with or against machines? 
What can we do to create user experiences that make work delightful? How can we design technology to benefit our lives and society? These are some of the big questions facing business people, technologists, and designers today. Good design is the master key that opens the doors to technology's possibilities and people's abilities. When the user experience is right, it means we can work in a cooperative partnership with machines. Designing a game-changing user experience brings you insights from the thought leaders who are working to make this happen. Learn how great user experiences allow people and businesses to take maximum advantage of technology's advances. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Designing a Game-Changing User Experience, presented by SAP. You're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Designing a Game-Changing User Experience. Here we are, and we're back. We're talking about a very important topic. This is major. Digital ethics and AI, AI being representative of disruptive technologies, which your business needs to know. And this is important for businesses of any size, shape, or form, anywhere in the world, any industry, any maturity. Chris Wigley at Quantum Black, Frank Diana at TCS, Guido Wagner at SAP, and I'm still Bonnie D. Graham. We're going to start the roundtable. This is going to be a good one, so listen up. I'm going to read one of the statements Chris Wigley sent me, and then I'm going to launch him into talking about something very interesting. So he says, digital ethics, and especially the ethics of AI, are not just about doing the right thing. It may be about that, okay, but it's also and perhaps principally about enterprise performance. So we set the stage there. Now I'm going to ask Chris, when it comes to machine learning and AI development, and I want you to, if you don't mind level setting for us, Chris, a lot of people say, well, is AI different from machine learning? Is it the same thing? Are they subsets, offsets? We think about three levels to pay attention to. So I'm going to task you with just giving us a quick explanation of that and then give us your three levels, please, Chris. Then we'll bring in Frank and Guido to comment. Go ahead, Chris Wakeley. For sure. Um, so we could, uh, we could talk all day about definitions of uh, artificial intelligence, and, and lots of very clever people like to debate that. I'll try and uh, throw out a simple definition. So artificial general intelligence is this quest to create um, a, a superhuman um, artificial intelligence entity. People like to think about the Terminator in this kind of dystopian future mm-hmm. um, or of some kind of uh, super, super being which is uh, benevolent in a utopian future. When we talk about machine learning and you know, applied uh, AI, applied artificial intelligence today, we're, re- we're really thinking about throwing lots of maths and statistics um, and lots of uh, computer power at complex problems. And we can do that to do things like uh, recognize objects in images. We can do that to predict things in, uh, in a time series and so on. So that's the kind of thing we're talking about. Um, so what are the ethical issues that that raises? 
I mean, for us, these are existential um, as a company. Was to your point about this is about enterprise performance, um, mm-hmm. and we've we've got someone at a board level within Quantum Black who's our chief trust officer, um, and we really wanted to have someone whose just full time job was thinking about this really at a leadership level. Um, so when it comes to to thinking about the different flavors of this, um, as we were building these technologies, often one of the first uh, questions is about bias, and, and often we can have this issue around um, algorithmic bias, which often comes from the data sets that are used to develop these models. Um, so there's a, an example of this where if we're training a, a facial recognition algorithm um, and we train it just on photos of, of uh, white guys, it's going to do a really uh, bad job at recognizing women, at recognizing people of color. And that's mm-hmm. both offensive, and it also means that this algorithm is not doing its job. It's not performing. Um, mm-hmm. So we need to really make sure that we're thinking about this question of bias and we're, and we're heading that off um, you know, right, right out of the pass. I think the second level is a question of fairness. So even if, um, even if the data is accurate, even if the, the algorithm is accurate, um, the algorithm is, is looking at the real history that humans have built. And we all know that there are some elements of history that we want to change. We're making the world better, hopefully, um, over time. And so when we're looking at things like predictive policing um, and which, which areas should the police spend more time on, when we're thinking about parole decisions um, mm-hmm. or loan applications, um, we may well actually want to not just have the algorithm reflect what's happened before, um, but actually... In, introduce some deliberate rules into, the, into these systems that mean that they get to actually a better outcome, a fairer outcome. Um, and then the final level we can think about there is ethics, which is um, not just how should we do this thing, but should we do it at all? And I think that's where we get into the most thorny discussions around things like facial recognition in mass surveillance systems, where some countries in the world, people are very comfortable with that, and it's, uh, it's being rolled out. Other countries in the world... People are very uncomfortable with it. And, you know, recently in California, um, the city of San Francisco just uh, banned any, uh, any state entities from, from using that technology. So we get very lively debate around those things. But, so we think about bias, we think about fairness, and we think about ethics as three ways to kind of crack, crack this thorny topic open. Thank you very much. That was a race to the clock there. I appreciate that very much. Let's go around the table. I, I didn't think you could do it that fast, and, and I knew you could do it that well. Uh, Frank, Diana, thoughts on these three levels? Talk to me. Bias, fairness, ethics. What's your thought? I know you're. this is in your wheelhouse, Frank. What do you think? Yeah, a lot to unwrap there in the time we have allotted, but in terms of bias, completely agree. And really, the, the biases, if you think about it, start at the university level. Because, unfortunately, a lot of the folks that are actually programming at the AI level are, are white men or men in general, uh, and very few women in, in the field, as we, as we know today. So you've got built-in biases based on, on just who is actually developing this, uh, this software. Uh, so bias is a big one. Uh, and, and I completely agree that could really alter how, how these systems perform. Um, fairness, another great one. I mean, I, I don't know that you can take the human out of the loop anytime soon uh, when you think about decisions like parole. And, and uh, there's already studies that show uh, a lack of fairness in how those algorithms perform. Um, and, and biases are baked in to create that uh, lack of fairness. Um, and then, you know, the, the notion of facial recognition is a good one. I think it's a great place to focus on uh, the challenges that the world will face 
because of the differences in the way the world thinks about these things. So uh, China, for example, is already using facial technologies as a mechanism for their citizens to pay for something. Uh, and mm-hmm. if you think about how quickly they will advance uh, towards some of this innovation, it creates a level of uncompetitiveness for other nations if they don't follow suit. So for me, it's going to be very interesting to see how the the uh, ethics conversation is impacted and influenced by uh, global dynamics. Very interesting. Thank you, Frank. Guido Wagner, let's get your thoughts on this. We've got our three levels here. Uh, anything or everything is up for commentary. Bias, fairness, and ethics. What's your position on any or all? Guido? Yeah, so my first comment would be about bias, but I would add um, a, f- a fourth level even. So regarding bias, I think that bias will be a really security-related topic in the near future. Imagine there is a, your training database is hacked, and um, the result of the result will be that your uh, analysis you are wrong, and you will get the wrong results, and you won't even find out that it is wrong. That is a challenge of bias and security. And I would add a level number four because uh, transparency is mm. another challenge. So if you use uh, neural networks in your system then you don't know exactly how it works. So it might not be so important if you just want to recognize pictures, but if you want to get an advice about a big investment, it would be great to know exactly how the system works. Okay. I like the fourth one. Let's go around. the. Now, give me the fourth one again one more time, Guido. What did you add? It, it's transparency. Transparency. Let, let me just go around the table. Let's use that as a, a new discussion statement. Um, Chris. Do you like the level four yeah. of transparency? What do you think? Um, transparency is definitely a big uh, topic. And we, we sometimes use this phrase, explainable AI. You know, can we explain how these models that um, have historically been something of a black box in terms of how they're making these decisions, um, but we keep using them because we know that if we feed in the right inputs, we're getting useful outputs. Um, kind of opening up that black box to understand what's going on is really important, particularly in regulated environments. So we do a lot of work with banks, um, with pharmaceutical companies, and it's, not, it's just not good enough for these organizations to say to their regulators, well, you know, the machine said we should give a loan to this person, we shouldn't give a loan to this person, or the machine said we should give this patient this treatment we need to be able to explain why. And that's pretty complex mathematically. And, you know, we probably shouldn't go into that here. But it's just, it's fair enough to say that um, we're starting to see um, the possibility of moving beyond what has historically been a trade-off between uh, explainability and transparency on the one hand and performance on the other hand. So even up to about a year or two ago, you would say you can have either one of those things. You can have something that predicts really well or optimizes really well but it's a black box, or you can have something which is explainable, but it won't perform as well. We're starting to, we're starting to get beyond that trade-off, hopefully. Thank you very much. Frank, Diana, do you like that transparency for the fourth one? No, it's a great, it's a great one to add, um, and I agree with everything that's been said. I, I would say, however, um, especially with deep learning, and, and we hear so many stories of, of the folks that actually were working with deep learning, not knowing exactly how it came up with what it came up with. Now, that, that's transparency at some level, but I think as more breakthroughs happen, there's just going to be so many things that the algorithms do that I, I don't know how we ever get to a level of transparency. Um, so, again, I go back to uh, as those things evolve and get more complex and sophisticated, uh, it could, I think it complicates everything we just talked about. 
Very interesting. Thank you. Uh, rumor has it that we lost Guido. His line dropped, and so Aaron is calling him back. So I'm going to stay with you, Frank, Diane. I'm looking at your notes here. You have so many. Is he back, Guido? Yes, I'm back. He's back. Okay, good. We, I know we lost you, and I know that Aaron was calling you back. We just had a good discussion going around the table about your transparency level four. I think you got a lot of applause for that one. So thank you very much for, for bringing that up. I appreciate that. I'm looking at Frank Diana's roundtable statements here. And, um, Frank, I like your last one. I think it's a little bit different. You say, philosophers wanted what once was the realm of qualitative and subjective thought quickly moves into the realm of tangible and actionable guidance. So who are these philosophers, Frank? Do we have a new job title here? Is this opening up something for millennials or boomers to say, I'm going to be a, an enterprise digital philosopher? Should we make this big announcement today, Frank Diana? Go ahead. Tell me what this means, please. I love it. I'm going to stay away from announcements. <laughs> okay. I think it, it's an important point in terms of uh, yeah. the, the topic, right? So ethics and digital guidance, I think um, the, the realm of philosophy plays very heavy here. And again, it, it always has been qualitative and subjective, but now it could manifest itself in tangible things. So, for example, you know, the guidance that we give an autonomous vehicle in terms of how to handle certain situations, that's very mm-hmm. tangible. And, you know, even the notion of philosophers being legally responsible for something that happens that goes wrong because of the guidance it gave, uh, you know, a specific use case, in this case, the, the, the car. Uh, so I think it's a real critical thought in the context of the kinds of individuals we need to help drive this all forward and to come to some of the conclusions we need to come to. There's an interesting one on my list as well that, that relates to this, uh, MIT's moral machine and the, the approach they took to crowdsource um, the the answers to some of these questions. So did you hit the, the, the child or, and save the driver or kill the driver to avoid hitting the child? And what would the crowd say? And do you use that crowdsourced approach to actually drive the uh, ethics into our, into our systems? Thank you very much. Guido Wagner, let's talk about philosophy. You agree or disagree with Frank that this is something we need? And would you be one of those philosophers, Guido? What do you think? I would love to be a philosopher, but um, <laughs> it, might be we, it might be we need people who are somewhere in between a philosopher and an engineer because um, we need to transfer what we define, for example, as guidelines uh, in ethics, transfer into um, real life and how to handle it. So we need to customize, for example, our customers' systems to find out how can they use their own business culture and their own ethical understanding. On the other hand, we need some kind of an audit for, for, for AI systems. So how will we audit AI systems in future? I have no idea. And um, yeah, somebody who is a philosopher and an engineer might be the best person to help you. <laughs> Very interesting. It's, Go ahead, Frank. Oh, no, it's, it's Chris. I was oh, it's Chris. Say, Chris, you're up next anyway. Go ahead, talk. Yes. <laughs> it's a funny coincidence, but our chief technology officer, um, his undergraduate degree at university was actually in philosophy. Um, and then he moved into computer science. So uh, he is maybe one of these uh, philosopher engineers that we're uh, that we're looking for. Um, there you go. I, I, w- I was thinking of the the the, uh, the uh, data scientist. You know that became a, a buzzword about a year ago. I think that everybody was going to be a uh, data scientist by night, put on their cape, and do some rescuing there. So maybe we'll we'll let's talk about transparency. That was one of Guido's words. Chris, do you think that the that we'll just emerge. We'll have our digital ethics philosophers. 
I think that um, I, I really agree with um, this, this point about moving from things that are qualitative to things that are tangible. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things that we work through a lot with the, the clients that we work with is how they translate the, the values that they've articulated for their organizations um, into something that is tangible and real and provides day-to-day guidance because all large companies have these sort of mission statements and value statements and, you know, around um, things like excellence and trust and authenticity and whatever. Mm-hmm. And those are, those are fantastic. But what they don't do is provide guidance to someone who's trying to develop um, a product or a model um, or, or some code um, and say, you know, what should we do? What questions should we be asking? Um, what are the red lines that we shouldn't cross? Um, and so actually trying to work through the almost like the mind map where you say, right, um, trust, what does that mean? What does that mean in terms of information security? What does that mean in terms of transparency and so on? And what does that mean in terms of the questions that our teams should ask and the, the processes they should follow and so on? So trying to get really nitty-gritty with uh, these topics that can seem quite high-level or quite sort of uh, aspirational is a really important part, I think, of, um, of trying to make sure that in the real world, every day, day-to-day, week-to-week, um, the people who are building these technologies are doing that, doing that in a way which is um, lined up with these, uh, these high-level values. Thank you very much, Frank. This was your statement. Any thoughts? Uh, you happy with the conversation? Anything you want to add in, in terms of go- getting back to either one of your co-panelists today? Uh, no, I think I, I, it sounds very supportive in the context of the tangible, that, that piece specifically. And I think that's the, that's the point. When something that was subjective and qualitative turns into something that you can quantify and becomes very tangible, it starts to drive action. And, and to me, that's, that's what's been missing, and I believe that's what's going to start to happen. But um, I'm sure Chris knows this better than I. This stuff's not easy. Um, and I, I do think yeah. it gets more and more <laughs> complex. Yeah. Thank you very much. Good topic there, Frank. Let's move on to something from Guido's notes. Guido, I picked something out of your list, and I love this one. Let me read a little bit and ask you to explain. You say, humans should always know if we are interacting with another human or with a machine. If you use a company hotline, it should be an ethical requirement. Oh, what a thought. An ethical requirement to let customers know if they're talking to a machine. A machine pretending to be a human will never increase people's trust in technology. Guido, is this revolutionary what you just said here? Talk to me. Give us a little detail on this, and then we'll go around the table and see if Chris and Frank agree or disagree with you. Yeah, sure. So, I think most of us are really used to talk to machines. So we have answering machines for uh, 100 years almost. Mm-hmm. We talk to our cars, we talk to Siri. And uh, today it's uh, quite easy to find out, find out if it's a machine or not because machines vocabulary is quite restricted. Yeah? But that will change. So in the near future, when you dial into a call center, for example, you will not know directly, is it a machine, a robot, or is it a human? And uh, one day when I called a call center, uh, the human answered, oh, I'm Dave, and uh, by the way, I'm not a bot, I'm a human. I think that's a completely wrong way. Yeah? Uh, it should not make people feeling they need to say, I am not a robot. It should be the other way around. The robots must mm-hmm. say, I'm a robot, and I'm not a human. 
That's my Very idea. interesting. Yeah. I'm not a robot. I, I like that. I'm not. <laughs> I, I don't know if the robot could be trained to say in the human voice, hey, I'm a real person. Talk to me. And it's still it's still the robot. You know, they could do that. Chris Wigley, what are your thoughts? Should we be told you are speaking with a bot? Thank you very much. Or, hey, I'm real. Let's have a conversation. And it's just a really well-trained AI bot. What's your thought, Chris? I don't know. There are, there are a couple of stories here which um, I find quite, quite funny um, and, well, interesting. One of them is from the early days of um, chatbots. And you can uh, look this one up online and see the dialogue. But it's someone trying to order a pizza from what they think is a chatbot. And so this is almost actually the opposite of, um, of Guido's uh, scenario. And it's a really difficult process. And eventually the person is getting frustrated. And then the chatbot responds, hey, dude, come on. I'm just trying to get this thing done. And I'm trying to pretend to be a, you know, bleep chatbot. <laughs> and so actually, this was before the technology was actually working well enough. There was a human on the, on the other end pretending to be a chatbot. <laughs> and then, <laughs> then recently, one of the big tech companies was uh, in showcasing their new uh, digital assistant. So you mm-hmm. could do things like uh, book appointments for you, make sure that you were going to get to the airport on time and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and the digital assistant um, connects to a phone line, phones up a hair salon, and in a perfectly normal uh, voice, talks to the lady in the hair salon to book an appointment for, um, for her client, for her boss. And the voice is very, very authentic. And when the lady in the in the hair salon says, oh, we have a slot at 12. The voice says, hmm, uh, hold on. Mm, yeah, 12 works. Um, you know, so it's very, very de- deliberately done to be very, very authentic sounding um, human. And it didn't announce that it was a, um, a machine. And, and that caused uh, all sorts of controversy. And I'm, I'm kind of torn on this one. I, I don't know if I would go for a, um, a hard and fast rule, um, but I mm-hmm. think that just as, there are these issues with electric cars being silent and we're used to um, cars making noise. So people keep stepping out in front of electric cars. And so, you know, you kind of need to find the right noise for an electric car to make. And people have said, oh, maybe they should play classical music because they go down the street or something. That would be nice so people can hear them coming. Um, Or maybe you put in a fake noise of an engine so that people hear them coming. I think that a lot of these norms are just going to change. And so I think it's difficult to say Mm -hmm. hard and fast rules on this kind of stuff. Very interesting. I have to tell you, I Googled trying to order a pizza from a chatbot, and uh, I only got 7,320,000 results in <laughs> 0.55 seconds, but I want to read a couple of the headlines. I think this will all make you smile. There's a site called bold360.com, the best AI chatbot, better customer engagement. Then we have, listen up, Domino's Pizza, the chatbot guide. Then we have Pizza Hut, the chatbot guide. Then we have Order pizza over a bot. Have you ever tried Domino's, the T-A-R-S chatbot? Then we have Domino's joins chatbot movement unveils Facebook Messenger. Then we have chatbot lets Pizza Hut customers try out conversational ordering. Then we have a site called medium.com. How to order food conveniently through chatbot? Question mark. Then we have Domino's now lets you order from its full menu via Messenger. Now we have order with Dom, Domino's interactive chatbot. Pizza Hut launches chatbot for ordering pizza, asking about blah, blah, blah. And then we have the final one, consumeradvocate.org. 
10 best chatbots in 2019, the top 10 chatbot systems. Chris, are you surprised by any of this? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not. Um, I'll see if I can track down the, the historic example and I'll, uh, I'll send it to you in a tweet or something. But uh, That would be these, great. These technologies are now very, uh, very mainstream. And as you say, all of, the big, uh, all of the big companies are using it because people are getting used to interacting in that way. We message each other the whole time. We message our husbands and wives and friends and colleagues. And it's become a very uh, embedded medium of communication in our lives. Absolutely. Frank Diana, talk to me. Have you ever ordered pizza or a go-to bottle of red wine from a chatbot and didn't know it was or did know it was? And what was your experience? No, I can't say that I've done any of that. Um, in the context of, of this discussion, you know, one of the things that I, I speak to when I talk to audiences is, is the, the automated society that we're heading towards. And, and it's, a, it's a, a wide spectrum in terms of just how it might play out. It, it can go anywhere from you know, augmenting humans uh, to replacing humans, right? I mean, there's just that, that broad spectrum. And in this discussion, uh, using the digital assistant as a great example, uh, that spectrum looks like digital assistant moves to human agent where the assistant is doing much more on our behalf, but the example that Chris gave, uh, all the way to potentially an autonomous agent where that agent is making a lot of our decisions for us. Um, and as, as, the, as it evolves, and they get very conversational, you're just not going to know whether you're talking to a machine or a human. I don't think it's viable or practical to think that we can produce those kinds of uh, warnings that you're talking to a machine if it goes in the path that I think it will. Mm, interesting. Guido Wagner, come back to me. What do you think? Uh, would you be excited or disappointed or a little leery if when you called to order a pizza said you are talking to Dom the Domino's chatbot, please make your order now rather than, hi, this is Dom, what would you like on your pizza today? What would you prefer to hear? Yeah, it would be okay if I know that it's a bot. So you could mm-hmm. ask, me, for example, about the weather in Boston or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, but I want to know if it's a human or a machine. That's all that I want to know. Of course, it would be not viable to never have machines answering any call. Yeah. There you go. Thank you very much. That was a provocative topic. <clears throat> Looking at the clock, we have about four minutes left until we go to our crystal ball predictions round. So I'm going to ask a question, go around the panel, starting with Chris and then Frank and then Guido. And the question is, we started out, I started out my opening talking about, do we need a, a handbook or a guide? Uh, I called it a framework of digital ethics. So if we started out with the concept that, yes, Companies, all sizes, shapes, forms, maturity, uh, industries, footprints, whatever, wherever, they need a framework of digital ethics. What would we call that? Would it be your digital ethics or AI Bible, your handbook? What would you like to see it called? And let me bring that back up to another level, Chris, first. Is this something that one organization, a new company, could produce it? and then sell it to everybody else. Is that a business opportunity? Chris Wigley, what would it be called, this framework, and should this be something that comes from a central place that trickles down and it gets sold to companies because it's just too much work to do their own? What's your thought? Um, well, I think um, I think a lot of people have tried to do this already, is my first point. Um, okay. And just, just, just like if you Google... Um, pizzas and chatbots, you get 7 million results. I'm sure that if you uh, Google uh, and, you know, a, a human's guide to AI ethics um, or whatever you want to call it, there are a ton, of, um, a ton of results come up. A lot of individual companies have done this. 
Um, the UN has done it. The EU has done it. Um, other, other states have done it. And I think that what we now need to do is translate a lot of those uh, principle statements that have come out mm-hmm. um, into much more tangible uh, guidance. When I was a kid, I was a big fan of the Douglas Adams uh, science fiction books, uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in those, the main character has um, this object, which is The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is remarkably like what we would now think of as an iPad. Um, and just on the back, it says, don't panic. Um, and I think that's my <laughs> kind of key takeaway from this is we need to think about this. We need a guide, but we also need to not panic. So I think we could call it the Hitchhiker's Guide to AI. Very interesting. <laughs> you sprung that one on me, kiddo. Thank you very much. Let's go. Frank, Diana, what would it be called? Would it, would uh, TCS, would you author the one, the one, this is the one you all need. Forget about what you received or heard about before. This is the one, the digital ethics guide. Would, is this a saleable item and, and could we do it that way? Frank, what would the title be? Uh, I mean, definitely your guide to digital ethics, I guess, is a good title. Uh, I don't think it's sellable, and I, <laughs> I really struggle with the notion that a challenge this broad and this impactful uh, isn't really being dealt at, at a global level. And I talked about this before. I liken mm-hmm. this period that we're entering to the period after World War II, uh, when a lot of the global bodies that we know of today were formed, and they were formed primarily to manage post-World War II life, and a lot of that had to do with the fear of nuclear war, et cetera. But, you know, a lot of these global bodies um, have, have existed since then um, and have, have done a, a great job of managing some, some broad global issues. I, I think the same thing is required today, given the, the enormity of the challenges that we're facing. And so, one, it's a global kind of discussion. But, two, it's so complex because globally there is no common view of morals and ethics. Right? Who, who's defining that? Uh, and mm-hmm. and uh, is it is there just one or are there multiple? And if there's multiple, what kind of challenges does that represent? So really sticky set of issues. Very much sticky wicket. I think we used to call that somewhere back in the day. <laughs> you might remember that. It's a sticky wicket. I do. I know you do. <laughs> Guido Wagner, what do you think? Would you would you create it? Would you sell it? What would you call it? Would it have a cool title like like the one that Chris Wigley offered or just a, a plain vanilla title like the one that Frank Diana offered? So what would you call your digital ethics guide to using AI with conscience and transparency? Guido, what do you think? <laughs> Well, to be honest, it's absolutely not important how to call it or how it's sold or if it's invented or whatever. It's important to do it and to do it in a in a common way so that all the companies agree on it, that our government agrees on it. I think we are currently at a point where with ethics where IT security was, uh, might be 20 years ago. So we learn that it's important and we learn that we need to collaborate. And if you sell it or if you just invent it, it's not so important. But we need to do it. We need to do it, absolutely. So that brings us to 52 after. We've got another barely five minutes. I need a minute to close the show. So I'm just going to say let's do the crystal ball predictions round. I think we've been doing a lot of predicting during the whole show. But what's most important to you? What would you like to see happen in terms of digital ethics for companies around the world? Chris Wigley, uh, let's say between now and 2025, not what you predict, but what would you like to see happen? Let's flip that on its ear and make it a slightly different end of show crystal ball. Chris Wiggly, I can give you 60 seconds. That's all I've got. Go ahead, please. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plant my flag uh, hmm. a few years out in 20, 2022. 
Oh. And I think that in that time, we talk now about unicorns, which are these uh, startups that have grown very rapidly and uh, achieved a billion-dollar valuation. So I think by 2022, we'll see a unicorn uh, startup that is based on enabling transparent and trusted AI at scale across you know, multiple, uh, multiple countries. That's their business model. I don't know if it'll be publishing a book to your, uh, to your handbook question. Mm-hmm. I suspect it'll be um, some way for individuals and companies to manage their data, but I think that that's a huge business opportunity. Um, and I think the flip side, and I don't know if I'd like to see this or not, but I think the flip side is in the same year, I'm going to make a prediction that in 2022, we'll have a, a big legacy company in some sphere or other, in some company, country or other, It'll go bust because of some massive mess up on the on the data ethics mm. um, or uh, technology ethics side. So I think it's both huge opportunity, new unicorn businesses, new new mega companies, and a huge risk as well. Thank you. Very interesting. So that's the wrong kind of getting your name in the headlines. Okay. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate that. I always tell my panelists before the show, I say, don't throw any company under the bus. I call it no bashing, trashing, or smashing. But that would be an interesting show to talk about who threw themselves under the bus because of their lack of digital ethics. I like the notion. We'll have to come back. I don't think we can wait till 2022. We're going to have to do that sooner. Frank, Diana, you're up. 60 seconds. What do you, would you like to see happen in terms of digital ethics in business between now and the next five years? Thoughts? Uh, so what I'd like to see is a balance between a need, a global need for uh, ethics. And if you look at the, uh, the current um, temperature in the global climate, you're starting to see more discussions around regulation. You're seeing more discussions around antitrust kinds of things and, and more of a souring uh, uh, for some technology companies like Facebook, et cetera. So there could be, on one hand, in the next couple of years, a move towards um, tighter regulation, tighter control, uh, managing more towards some as- aspect of uh, governing some of this stuff. Um, I, I, I can't predict that. But I, what, I, what I hope for is a global governance mechanism that emerges uh, to guide this discussion forward, whatever it looks like in the in the end, uh, you know, a guidebook or software that enables the mechanism. I think what we're looking at is a global governance mechanism again, much like I I mentioned back in, in World War II day. And so that's my hope. Thank you very much, Guido Wagner. I have oh thirty seconds for you. I'm sorry, we were just having such a good time there. What's your prediction or your hope for the next five years, Guido? Yeah, so. Yes, I'm here. So, uh, yeah, I predict that uh, the humans will stand up and uh, demand that AI is used responsibly by our companies and by government. And uh, if people understand that uh, from a level of human ethics is part of that game, yeah, then we can do everything that is the best out of AI and we can make the world run better. Thank you. Thank you very much. Brief and to the point. I appreciate that. I have to do a shout out to Esther Blankenship again. Esther, you really rocked this one. Great topic, terrific panel. Everybody is very engaged and engaging and I think we had a great discussion a shout out to Aaron Keller at the Business Channel our engineer extraordinaire getting us on the air and keeping us there I'm Bonnie D. Graham and here's my call to action and the quick announcement is that Next week is the final Coffee Break with Game Changer show, and I'll be launching a brand new series called Technology Revolution, The Future of Now on June 5th. That's Wednesdays, 11 a.m. on the Business Channel, 11 a.m. Eastern. Here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What in the world are you waiting for? We're not waiting. Go out and be a game changer today, just like Chris Wigley at Quantum Black. 
just like Frank Diana at TCS and just like Guido Wagner at SAP. Have a great one. I'll be back in one hour with Game Changing Megatrends talking about trusted products. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Designing a Game-Changing User Experience, presented by SAP, the best run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.